Hey Fresh Capital listeners, Albert and I did something a little different this week. In this episode, we interview Chris Webster, Portfolio Manager and Head of Tech, Communications and Media at Magellan. We start off talking about his work at Magellan and how he analyzes tech companies generally. We then get into a really in-depth discussion about Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Keep listening. We think you'll enjoy this episode a lot. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how investing works and how companies operate. My name is Dan and I'm joined by my good friend Albert and a special guest, Chris Webster. Chris, how are you doing? Doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks, Chris, and it's good to have you on. Chris is a portfolio manager at Magellan Financial Group. Chris is head of the technology, communications and media team. Chris, I always think it's better. Do you want to describe what you do? Sure. Well, um, maybe just a bit on Magellan to begin with, because it gives a bit of context. We're a large uh, equities fund manager in Australia. Uh, We manage 100 billion Aussie, but uh, about 75% of that is in global equities. Um, And that's where most of my effort is concentrated. Um, And, you know, so it's, as as you said, it's tech media and communications has been my uh, major focus over the last uh, decade or so. And what that means is, uh, you know, scouting the world for the, the best, highest quality um, and, and, and ideally fastest growing uh, and cheapest stocks uh, in that sector or in those sectors. Um, in terms of Magellan, um, you know, we do have this very important quality overlay um, and we want to make sure that we are not overpaying for things. So it's particularly important in a market like we're seeing at the moment to, to, to avoid pockets of overvaluation when we see them. Uh, so what got you into tech and then this side of, of investments? Um, well, I, I was, I started my, so I, I started my career in, um, in funds management, basically. I was, I was more on the sell side. I was in a, a weird little company that was, uh, did, did a bit of both. Um, but I ultimately ended up on the buy side pretty quickly. Um, but I actually started off in infrastructure, um, which is a very good grounding, uh, gives you a very good grounding in valuation. When, when you've got hard assets, it's much easier to value things. Um, because you've got something to bring back your, uh, your your earnings to in terms of the cost of capital basis. Um, and then, you know, go to the other side of the spectrum and find things that just have huge amounts of IP, uh, lots of um, intangible assets and try to figure out how they're going to grow and, and how competition is going to eat away their returns over time. So um, I just got the opportunity early in joining Magellan about 13 years ago to, to cover that. It was a much smaller team and much smaller company back then. Um, and, and it was just a fortunate, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. Uh, it was, it was good to, to end up in that spot because obviously the last decade in tech has been, has been remarkable and we've grown the team, uh, pretty, pretty strongly from there. Nice. And then day on day, give us a flavor of what, um, you know, a day at Magellan looks like. Uh, well, day at Magellan, um, a lot of it is just real research. We, we have. Uh, 30 analysts and portfolio managers. Uh, the global fund has 25 stocks in it um, on average or at any one point in time. We cover probably another um, 150-ish. Uh, and so there's a lot of, there's very few stocks per analyst. And what that means is we cover them with extraordinary depth. Um, and ultimately that means 
we every time the company puts something out, every time a peer or um, a, a customer or a supplier uh, puts something out that's important, uh, we make sure that we're on top of it. Uh, we talk to experts, we talk to the company a lot and, and build very detailed financial models. So, um, you know, I think one of the fortunate things about covering global equities from Australia is that we're not um, we're not um, awake while the market's open. And it seems to be counterintuitive, you know, that's that's kind of what you think of when you when you think about financial people. Um, but in actual fact, you know, I lived in New York for, for four years with Magellan and I found it incredibly distracting. Um, uh, what you want is kind of clear air to really think about these things. And that's what we do. Um, you know, if you walk into Magellan offices most days, it, it, it resembles a library uh, of people, you know, just reading a lot and, and, and doing a lot of financial modeling. Yeah, and something we talked about just before we started recording was, um, you know, retail investors piling into the market, you know, doing some research and no research before they start to make investment decisions. And you just talked about, you know, you do a lot of research and the analysts do a lot of research. Um, can you talk to us more about the kind of research that goes into making decisions around, you know, the 20 or so companies um, within the global fund or the 150 or so companies um, that you're assessing? Like, how do you start to assess these businesses? Um, so, well, the, the first thing is actually selecting the businesses themselves. Um, you know, we're a very large cap manager, so the universe is um, smaller um, sort of just by that. Uh, we typically don't invest below 10 billion um, market cap. But, you know, in tech now, that's actually quite a big <laughs> universe. Um, every IPO is, uh, it seems to be in the triple digits now. Um, so, so we, you know, what we try and do is we find companies that are big enough and that are high quality enough. And in the early stages, we actually try to, as much as possible, ignore valuation or what we perceive to be to what we think about valuation. Because um, one of the things I've learned over time is my first thought about valuation is almost always wrong. Um, and this, when something looks incredibly overvalued, particularly in tech, there's often a pretty good reason. Um, whether that plays out over time or not is another story. But um, you know, even Tesla, which I think is is a um, you know we, we don't cover it, and I don't have a strong view on it. But I know you can make a case, um, uh, you know, to, to get to the valuation, even though it does look very strange. Um, so I'd say that we start the process very much from a quality perspective, and when we're talking about quality, um, really the the key thing is competitive advantage, or what we call economic moat. And what we're talking about there is the the sustainability of high returns on capital for long durations and it doesn't have to be and this is important for tech it doesn't have to be that they're earning those high returns on capital today but only that that is very likely to happen in the future um, so you see a lot of companies like salesforce.com that invests heavily through its PL. and so it's um, you know for years and years and netflix as well their, their earnings look you know, woeful, and therefore their, their return on capital looks woeful. Um, but actually, what you can see through cohort data and um, and looking looking into it a bit more and taking out that sort of growth capex element of, of costs, um, that they're actually you know on their way to to very very expansive moats um, and um, and and long durable competitive advantages. Yeah, that's so interesting because you talked about kind of the valuation aspect of your career and assessing tech companies. And now we look at the market now, there's um, tech companies who are incredibly overvalued uh, or people talk about how overvalued they are. But starting from a lens of competitive advantage is almost a very qualitative way of assessing a business and then diving into um, the quantitative aspects of it. 
which is kind of an approach that Dan and I take when we start to assess businesses, partly because we don't have a very strong um, quantitative background, but um, qualitative is an easier way and probably more nuanced way at times to assess business. What are like the kind of quantitative as- qualitative aspects sorry, that really jump out of you when you think about competitive moats? Um, well, I mean, in technology, there are really, um, I would say there are, there are a few ones that are really important. Um, network effects is a big one. So, uh, you know, I think the classic is, is a social network like Facebook. You know, every individual that joins that, that network makes the network more valuable. Every you know, time that these people add more content, it's more valuable. Um, and then it makes it very difficult for anyone else to, to um, develop a similar social network. So that's, that's a really important one. Um, switching costs are another one. Um, you know, you hope that these companies all have, you know, undying customer love for all time. Um, but when you're talking about 20, 30 plus year competitive advantage periods that, that we're looking for, having switching costs in there uh, provides a bit of insurance just in case the customer love wears off. And you see that, you know, companies like Microsoft Office, uh, you know, have not been universally loved for their entire history. Um, you know, Google, when Google came out with its uh, it's sort of similar product. Microsoft had been napping for a while in, in office, but the amount of switching costs that that product has in the organizations uh, meant, meant that it could do that and, and sustain. And now it's come back and has got that customer love back. So but the switching costs will remain if it ever loses it again. Um, and one other thing I'll, um, I'll just mention is, um, I guess brand, or I'd say direct customer relationships are really a really important source of competitive advantage. Um, it's because in, in, on, uh, in tech companies and, and online digital commerce in particular, it's very costly and becoming more costly to acquire customers. Um, and so if you can have a business where you have more and more customers coming directly to you, it is just a remarkable competitive advantage. And we've seen it, um, you know, Google, you know, has this free product. Um, and so it's always said it's a competition is yet, yet a, a click away, but it's actually incredibly costly. We saw Microsoft spend billions of dollars year after year, after year trying to go after um, after Google, but it couldn't make the economics work because it was paying 90 cents on the dollar away to Yahoo for its traffic, whereas Google got the vast bulk of its traffic for free. So you know, that, that direct customer relationship is really important. I really like this point about an economic mode or competitive advantage because I think it's a good way to compare what I could call traditional businesses from tech companies. And in my mind, we recently covered Tesla and and talked a lot about the startup costs of having a factory and production line and really being able to scale uh, creating motors and cars. And in one ways, I think that's the traditional way we looked at barriers to entry for business to get started up. Comparatively for tech companies, I think they're true or false. There's a perception that you could have two uni kids in their garage creating a tech company. And the cost associated with that seems to be quite low. So how do you see that playing out in the tech industry, Chris, where to me it seems like there's a potential for the market to be incredibly fragmented rather than consolidated? Yeah, well, I guess it depends very much on the market we're talking about. Um, the, the companies we invest in, uh, we've talked about a few of them, you know, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, um, Alphabet, um, it's hard to imagine more concentrated markets that they dominate. Um, 
And, you know, if an Apple uh, is, you know, is, I guess less concentrated, but still very dominant in its market, you know, that a, a few of them did start with the two college kids in the, in the garage or in the dorm. Um, I think things have changed. Uh, I think you have, you know, where there is sort of white space, there is more of that ability. Um, so, you know, obviously with social networks, it was possible. Um, you know, if you look at Oculus, that was, that was kind of a guy in a garage. There's been a few, um, I think Cruise, uh, the, the um, autonomous driving startup was that. So you have, you know, in these new spaces, you do have this ability for individuals to make, you know, to make, I guess, very, very strong returns early on. But I think the thing that's changed is you have not only these huge platforms that are all wanting to gobble up the future um, over each other, um, and they're all willing to spend huge amounts, you know, they're all so aware of that advancement of technology and the, and the new platforms that are coming up, they're willing to spend big to get that. So, you know, citing the $2 billion cost for Oculus that Facebook is willing to pay or, um, you know, the billion dollars for Instagram. I mean, it, it seems pretty, it seems pretty different in the past. Yeah. And I don't want to call them, you know, two guys in a garage, but, um, AdSense was an acquisition by Google, um, which has fueled, you know, a really large portion of their business now. And then Instagram, again, I think Facebook bought them when they were like 16 or 20 people. Like there seems to be that consolidation of uh, the two guys in the garage. Like how do you see that further consolidation as these digital giants or tech companies start to, you know, buy out other players um, in market? Well, yeah, that, I guess that's an, an, it's another interesting element looking forward because there has been this period, I mean, I just described where you had the, the, the giants kind of picking the mushrooms um, just as they as they blossomed, but before they started to compete. Um, but with the regular regulation moving in the way that it has and really accelerating around the world, that activity is probably in the past. Um, and so, you know, will there be a new, you know, TikTok's a bad example because it's it's Chinese, but um, you know, a, a new social network that fills some new little niche um, that. Facebook is unable to buy and, um, you know, actually takes them on uh, successfully. So uh, it's, it is an interesting, an interesting thought. But I do think that, that effectively the, the platforms are so aware of the risk and they have such um, uh, advantages in these direct connections of all their customers. Um, and, and in particular, with, um, in Facebook's case, case, they're so willing to brazenly copy their competitors that uh yeah it's it's definitely it's a risk that is but it's not a, i would not call it like a very high risk to the the sustainability of these businesses uh, this might be a, a segue into a further point i'm not sure if you've looked into this chris but uh, i was listening to a talk given by wordpress's ceo and founder about open source and, and essentially a push among tech to having more open sourced um tech because under that sort of framework, the best horse will win. But when you start adding in layers like IP, intellectual property, you start creating barriers where the growth of these, um, the productivity rather, these uh, inventions declines. So how do you see that overlay coming in? And perhaps we might touch a little bit on government regulation and how that could play a part in, in how this all plays out. Yeah, I think open source has been obviously an important um, factor for years and years, um, and it will almost certainly continue to be so. Um, 
the what I find interesting about the past of open source is it's often actually taken a large corporation with the profit motive and putting a kind of support uh, revenue stream over the top to actually really scale it. And um, we give you the examples of Red Hat with its version of enterprise grade Linux, and then uh, Google with its um, with with Android. Uh, so. Um, while I think it is, you know, open source is a great sort of, you know, I think it's a great way to have new um, and alternative softwares be developed. Uh, developed. I'm also, I'm, I would say that I, I think they will coexist. And if you think about like what actually, you know, when we're looking at the companies we're looking at in that space that, you know, that compete against the open source softwares, you know, the enterprise grade stuff, um, you know, that they are providing a service to enterprises, you know, that, you know, helps them run their, their entire businesses with minimal risk um, and, you know, maximum uptime um, for a fee. And, you know, that's why Red Hat exists is because, you know, the open source version of it was not satisfactory to enterprises. Um, I don't think that's going to change. And in fact, I think it's probably enterprises demand for that is probably going to only going to increase their willingness to pay. You know, every time you open, uh, you know, um, the news, there's some other hack that's taken place at the highest levels now um, of U.S. you know, so, so security. So, um, I, while I, I think it's it plays a role, I, I don't think it's really a threat to the the, the, the enterprise software companies that you know, that for the most part, that we're looking at. We've talked um, quite a bit about these macro themes around regulation, you know, uh, market consolidation, open source, and then as well as the other thing is you look for when you're assessing companies, um, you know, competitive advantage, stickiness, brand, network effects, kind of like applying them all together. Um, is there a company that you're um, looking at at the moment or within your portfolio that fits all those themes um, and is a great company that to invest in or something you're quite um, bullish on? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, Alphabet to me is a real standout. Um, it is... You know, for, for those who don't know, you know, its its major product is Google Search, but it actually has nine consumer services with over a billion monthly active users. This is a absolute behemoth of a company. Um, so, you know, YouTube, um, it's got Android, Chrome, the Play Store, but you know, Search is really where the a lot of the money is made. And one of the things I guess that's the most exciting about it is its new hyperscale cloud business, Google Cloud Platform. So just so just in terms of breaking it down, you know, in those um, ways we talked about before, the network effects and such. Um, with search, it has really, you know, first of all, Google dominates search outside of China. So something like ninety percent market share. Um, I mentioned before, Microsoft tried and failed. You know, one of the biggest companies in the world throwing money at this problem and really found it almost impossible. It's the number two with a much with a single digit market share. Um, and search has really become this way that advertisers, um, that marketers acquire customers. Um, and it's just an absolutely indispensable part of digital um, commerce uh, now and in the future. It's only going to get more important as, uh, as more business gets conducted online. Um, so in terms of those, you know, it's, it's got scale, this uh, fixed costs that, uh, that it takes to run that business are Im immense on a global basis in all the languages it does and all the algos it's running. Um, it has network effects with its usage. So customers, you know, using Google, every time you put in a search it, and, and whatever you click on, 
it feeds that back into its algos. So the next time you or anyone like you is uh, is searching, the relevance has been impacted and improved a little bit. So getting more of that data is just making the product better. So that's that's a that's a network effect, um, network effect there. Um, plus, you've got obviously huge amounts of direct direct customers coming directly to Google, making it a very economically sensible business as well. Um, so. So I think from from a, from a competitive advantage perspective, it's really hard to see um, material kind of normal competitive pressure coming to bear against Google, which is why uh, I probably spend you know I cover I cover Alphabet at, uh, at Magellan. I would spend eighty percent of my time in my coverage reading regulatory documents because the governments are gunning for it around the world. I want to park that on the government regulation side of things because it's an interesting topic. I think we should get back to. But I wanted to dive in a little bit about my, about Google Cloud rather. So in 2019, their revenue grew by about 53%. So can you dive in a little bit more about what that product is, why it's seeing this growth and what expectations are for the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Google Cloud is a, um, a competitor to Microsoft Azure or um, Amazon's web services. So these are and basically the three big Western um, hyperscale cloud vendors. So effectively what they enable is for um, enterprises in particular to shift their, what they previously had, um, all their workloads, their email and all their applications running on their premises and have big server farms. You know, if you remember, if you're an office worker, you remember you used to have, um, you know, a part of the building was, was dedicated to servers. Uh, now, there's no service there anymore. It's just networking equipment. And the networking equipment leads out to these data centers run by these big companies. Um, and that's where all the computation, all the storage is taking place. Um, by doing that, you're basically getting all these advantages. Um, firstly, scalability is a big one. Um, the, the ability to, um, yeah, to, to, to scale up and down, to quickly... Um, patch problems across the entire uh, user base. It's, it's, it's got, so cloud has a lot of advantages. There is no question that all enterprises are moving that way. SaaS companies obviously all run uh, on the internet and are using these businesses. Um, and it's enabling new use cases. So rather than having to you know, get a new application and go through the process of buying hardware and buying, you know, configuring the software and the networking on top of it and doing all that in-house, it's a flip of a button um, on, on a Google or, a, or an AWS. So the, the, the trend is very clear what's happening. Um, what was probably not immediately obvious five or 10 years ago was just how scale, how much scale was required to make these businesses work. These are really more, they sound like infrastructure businesses, but they're really much more like enterprise software businesses. They've got, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of business, uh, a business process that goes into how they design, uh, you know, how, how businesses use them, um, and therefore um, it's very sticky. Once businesses, you know, move on to a, a, a cloud, it's a very sticky business, and it grows very, very fast, particularly in this phase of the, the transfer. Um, so they're huge scale. Um, there's, we think there's only going to be three major ones outside of China, um, uh, and Google's going to be one of them. It's the smallest. It recognized, you know, I, I would say Google has the greatest shot. It, it had the biggest internal infrastructure before this um, of the three. 
um, and it had greater shot of doing it, but it was the slowest in productizing those um, those skills. And so it's been late to the party and it's had to spend very, very big to catch up. So it's, I mean, you, you mentioned, I think that it made $13 billion in sales last year, growing at 50%, but um, it actually lost at the EBIT line, it lost $6 billion. So it's spending a lot of money to catch up. Um, but we think over time that will be, um, you know, it's very worth it because again, it's going to be a concentrated market with, with, with huge opportunities for growth. And then talking about competitive advantage, when you look at, you know, Google Cloud versus AWS um, versus Azure or even, um, you know, Alibaba Cloud um, in kind of Aden Asia, what makes Google Cloud um, differentiated from, I guess, the other two Western products and how do they sustain that advantage? Yeah, I actually don't. I mean, there are going to be differences. Um, you know, Google is known for its um, its AI chops, its analytics in particular, relative to the others. But um, they all have very strong AI ability. They all, you know, Google has a, a lot of the innovations in the cloud that, have, that ultimately came out of Google at one point in time because they had to do it internally. Um, so I think they've got, you know, they're leading or close to leading in many areas. But in actual fact, I'm not sure that they have to be that different. It's the, the, the fact that it's a global oligopoly, the fact that they keep on pushing the envelope, they're going to go after different verticals at different times. Um, and I think the, the, they will all be very satisfactory for their, their customers. So I just know looking on LinkedIn, I've had a friend who recently took up a role at Google. Um, essentially, I think government relations is part of the title for her. I've seen similar titles on LinkedIn popping up in the APAC region. Is this a trend you're seeing where, I mean, is it as simple as saying it's a, a lobbying um, in-house role or what is Google and some of these other tech companies trying to do in response to government regulation? Limited would be the, um, would be the most, uh, I think, honest answer. I think, um, there are real like i think there are some real abuses that have taken place uh, among all of these companies um i also think that most of the abuses are seen with the benefit of hindsight um, i find it laughable that they would reverse the instagram acquisition for instance which has been talked about in the us when it was a tiny company um, it almost certainly is as big as it is today because it like effectively was plugged into facebook's advertising system um, and so to think that somehow like that you know that that that, that should be reversed that that's good that, that's a good decision it seems ridiculous um, but I think what it I think what the companies are trying to do is effectively avoid that worst case because I guess what I've learned um, from the recent news news media bargaining code in Australia is that irrespective of the how logical or otherwise I think the actual law is, governments can do what governments are going to do. And if they get the votes, then, you know, sort of logic be damned. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you read Stratechery. It's um, a blog about, yeah, strategy. Um, but Ben Thompson had a great um, podcast episode um, about the ACCC media bargaining law and talked about how it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how a lot of tech companies operates and use the example of Google, you know, in Spain, um, paying news outlets for news, but what they didn't want to give away was their algorithms. Like given kind of this increasing shift 
Um, do you see this as a serious kind of risk to Google's business? Or do you see it as like kind of a passing storm that maybe is the flavor for a year or so? I, uh, I don't think it's a passing storm. I think it's, this, is, this is where, I mean, at, this is a, the price of success. Um, I hope it's not a pricing, passing storm because if it's a passing storm, it means that uh, it kind of Google has lost its relevance to some degree. Um, but I also don't think it's a, it's likely to be a huge uh, or a material risk to its share price and or to its valuation. Look, and it's very hard to be definitive on these things. And so I'll just give you a few uh, examples of where I get that comfort from. Um, number one. Uh, is really the European Union has tried very hard over a number of years to bring Google to heel over a number of abuses, some of which I think were fair, um, such as I think the fairest one was forcing uh, OEM, handset OEMs to bundle Google Search and Chrome as a um, condition of getting access to the Play Store. This is Android OEMs. Um, that's like Windows and Internet Explorer all over again, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, the thing that gives me comfort is not the fact that these, um, that they found these things, but that Google stopped doing them. They compl have complied. And I think throughout the world, they've made those changes. Um, and you would not notice in their revenue growth that there has been any negative consequence. There was a material, um, monetary con consequence. It was not over three um, different fines, it was 9 billion euro, but in the context of a 1.4 billion dollar, so under 1.3 billion euro, uh, trillion euro, sorry, market cap, it's just insignificant. Um, so that's that's one that gives me a lot of comfort. Um, the I, I think the, the thing that I am probably the, the most concerned about, but also I think is the fairest thing that I think should actually happen from a regulatory perspective is that they should be taxed more. Um, I think there is a very compelling argument that they don't pay enough tax anywhere except for the places where they reside their IP. This is a this is a fault of the international tax system. And, you know, we came very, I think the OECD came close uh, in 2016 uh, or, you know, <laughs> heading up into the Trump presidency and getting close to actually fixing it. Uh, there was a bit of a hiatus because that, that period was not known for uh, international cooperation. Um, but it looks like it might happen again. I think that's where... You could see, uh, you know, potentially these companies getting, you know, paying their share more, doing a bit, you know, while not actually facing what I think are frivolous regulations like the news media bargaining code. I mean, this might be a little bit besides the point, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the way these companies have obviously strategized that the best way to respond to this is in some ways in the public domain? So you'd have... Uh, I think it was Google obviously putting a little alert at the top saying Australia is trying to shut down Google search and, and essentially arguing their side of the case, which, as I think you've touched on, in response to some of the media reporting, it's fair to have different sides of the story played out. But the risk, as I see it, is you, know, you could lose one of these uh, battles in the public sphere and when we talk about network effects, I think it plays a little bit both ways. I don't think there's a risk of it necessarily here, but if you really turn off a lot of your users, and I think an example would be Facebook uh, during the American elections selling the, the Cambridge Analytica. But I think that really was a turning point in some of the perceptions towards Facebook. 
And I don't think you can have multiples of those uh, sort of in, in a decade and come out unscathed. So what do you think about how these companies obviously thinking about addressing this issue? Do you think it's right that they're coming out in the public sphere or would you think it, it's better to maybe be a little bit more quiet and behind the scenes? I, I, like, I think they've got to do both. Um, I think they've got to actually, like Facebook demonstrably did not do enough. Um, you know, it ignored warnings uh, and it, that, you know, Zuckerberg appears to have a very libertarian, libertarian streak, which, you know, that, that sort of is, is kind of fine. Uh, it's probably a good place to start rather than being um, hard left or right. Um, but it obviously led to some pretty bad negative externalities. Um, how they've dealt with that to, to go and specifically on, on Facebook is to actually go back and spend a ton of money on human on human moderators and AI to try and fix the problem. Um, actually, you know, do actual things. The margins came down remarkably from you know the pre twenty sixteen period to post. Um, so they're actually, you know, they're actually doing things about it quietly behind, I would say quietly behind the scenes, cooperating very, like very, very strong, uh, you know, hand in hand with the intelligence organizations around the world. Um, but then also they're coming out and they're trying to change the narrative because I, I think with Facebook in particular, you know, there's, you see, I, I can't remember the name of the Netflix documentary that came out um, that was just, I, you know, I mean, it's fine. It was like the Australian media talking about the news media bargaining code. It's like, it's a very one-sided argument. Um, I think that the, the thing that a lot of these, um, it's very sensational. It, what, what it hides is a lot of the problems that Facebook and Google and, and these other companies have uncovered is human behavior when um, users can kind of have very, very broad reach um, and when that's allowed to go unchecked. So I think uh, it's, it's kind of, it's fair. I mean, no one's crying a tear for these companies, but um, I think it's fair for them to both try and solve the problem in a way that protects free speech and also actually tries to improve um, the problem and then actually try and change the narrative in the public sphere and say, we're not actually the bad guys that uh, we're deemed to be. Looking to the future now, um, you know, we talked a lot about Google Cloud as a, a growing part of um, Alphabet's business, but really is a teardrop in, you know, the contribution of revenue. Where do you see other parts of Alphabet kind of fueling growth long term? Yeah, so I mean, Google Cloud is a really big contributor because uh, over time, uh, big is yeah, in, in, in um, relation to this behemoth, which is search, but um, in part because of the huge um, shift in the earnings, you know, it's it's losing six billion dollars a year. To put that in context, you know, Google Google's earnings last year was forty billion, around forty billion. So it's a big shift just to get that to to not losing money, uh, let alone actually generating uh, money in line with what you know, sort of the thirty percent mar margins that AWS has. So like that is a that's a big part of the what you call a bull case because you know you and you know we talked about valuation before, but one of the with tech companies, and particularly these big sort of conglomerate tech companies, um, Alibaba is similar and Tencent. Um, it's very easy to look at um, the consolidated earnings and the, per, and the price earnings ratios and things like that and go, oh, they don't look that cheap. And then you forget to go, well, actually, Google Cloud and um, you know Waymo, which is their um, autonomous car subsidiary, are losing on average, let's say, $10 billion last year. So actually, their earnings are twenty percent higher than 
um, that for the rest of the business is 20% higher. So I'm actually paying a very, very inexpensive price for search and YouTube um, and, and, and Play Store. And if Google Cloud and, and, and Waymo were separately listed, we'd be getting, you know, $100, $200 billion for that. Um, so it's, it's important to kind of to, to pass those things out. Um, but in terms of the, so the other things that uh, parts of Google, so I, I mentioned Waymo, that is, it's a really interesting option. I mean, it is worth tens of billions of dollars already. Um, but, you know, and I think everyone sort of uh, goes uh, up and down on their excitement towards autonomous and how long it's going to be. I think it's probably going to be quite a long time before we get to the full autonomy with no steering wheel that Waymo's after. Um, but at the same time, I think they've got a really good shot. I think there's a few uh, others uh, that are anywhere near where they are. So uh, that's a really interesting um, potential. You know, I'm sure a big chunk of Tesla's valuation is, uh, you know, people that are giving them credit for autonomous taxis at scale. Um, so um, I, I don't, I'm not sure that Waymo's given that. <laughs> given that. Um, YouTube's another one um, that I think... Is, is you know it's, it's a 20 billion dollar business it's huge but it's just lost in google um and it's it's already taking a you know material share of people's viewing time but there's still a lot left to go uh in the you know on traditional linear tv i think this might be a chance for us to zoom out a little bit and refocus on a point we talked about which was retail investors some particularly young some maybe not as well informed i mean you can always be more well informed when you invest in something but using Alphabet as a particular case example, how would you advise someone to break down a company at the size of Alphabet? What do you need to understand before you invest? And is it as simple as you need to study it for a year before you invest? Or you know, are there shortcuts? For someone who's um, a retail investor, what do they need to know about big companies before they should be comfortable sort of diving in? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because my job depends on it being hard, harder than retail investors could do on their own. Um, so I'd say, you know, invest in Magellan to be sure, but to the extent you're doing it, uh, you know, you don't take that advice. Um, I, I think, yes, the most important thing that you really, as to start with, is to understand this competitive advantage. So you split, you need to split the business up into its constituent parts. That's been made a lot easier with Alphabet over the last few months because they actually split out their revenue. They used to, I, I had like a, a, a model that had eight segments and they only reported three, but you needed to do that uh, and just take, take these wild guesses because otherwise, you know, they're growing at different rates. They've got different margins, different return profiles. Otherwise, you just don't get a number that makes any sense. Um, it's made a lot easier now because they actually are a bit more transparent. Um, so I'd split it out. I'd try and get a basic understanding of the, Competitive advantages, uh, the margin profiles and the growth profiles of each one. Um, and, and when it comes to growth, um, you can really look at it two ways. Growth is always, at some point, these companies are going to grow at GDP or below. Otherwise, that if they grow, that nothing can grow above GDP forever, then it becomes the size of the economy. Um, so we, that, you know, lower large numbers will eventually hit, hit them. Uh, I have predicted that for Google for years, and it keeps on defying gravity. Um, so, uh, I'd also caution, you know, I think, th I think retail investors have an advantage, certainly the current crop of, uh, of retail investors in, in technology have me beat on that because they're a lot more optimistic on the sustainability of growth. Um, but what I would say is, you know, look at the recent growth rates, 
ultimately they have to come down. But also, the, you know, look at the TAMs, look at the, the total addressable markets. Try to be sensible about that, um, rather, you know, rather than throwing everything, uh, everything possible in there. Um, and 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 then once you've got that for each segment, you really, you know, you can get a sense of, you know, what's what's the growth going to be, what's the margin, so what's the profitability of each of those segments. Add them all up, and you get, you'll get an earnings. I mean, the, the simplest way to do that is do it in five years' time. Get an earnings number, slap a a reasonable price earnings ratio on that. Um, and re- by reasonable, I would say, um, you know, you can use the last few years, probably discount it if the growth is going to slow, if you pretty the growth is slow, and then see where that gets you. You know, luckily you don't have to worry about dividends because virtually none of these companies pay dividends. So you're just looking at, you know, what's the earning growth going to be and uh, over time, over a three or four year period, and to the extent that that's moderated by a, a price earnings ratio decline because of the growth. And that'll give you a sense of what your return could be if, if your forecasts are right. <laughs> it's because I don't know many retail investors who, um, who go to that much trouble, but, um, you know. <laughs> that's the problem with the, the question and asking me that question. Uh, that's, um, but, like, but it's also the issue with, um, you know, uh, it's, I, I made a ton of mistakes when I was an, a, you know, younger and hadn't had any experience. Um, and the problem is the more experience you have, the less comfortable you are making a investment without, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. So, you know, um, you know in summary, invest in Magellan's funds. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely easier than having, um, you know, Wall Street prep on uh, one screen and an Excel model on the street and trying to work out how to do a, a DCF or evaluation, especially at a tech company. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I think you could also just, uh, a lot of the uh, companies are valued on revenue multiples. A lot of them, uh, you know, just require growth to be sustained. Um, so to the extent, it's a really hard thing to get conviction about growth rates over time. But to the extent that, you know, you're a bit more optimistic than I am or a bit uh, uh, more able, more comfortable with your conviction in those sorts of things, then that, that you know, I think a lot of a lot of these companies, as long as the growth doesn't slow, they will continue their march upwards. So that's that's probably the simplest way I can think of. Sounds like you're pretty optimistic, uh, Albert. Anything else before we finish up? No, I think that's everything from me, um, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Thank you, Chris. All right, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to Fresh Capital, a podcast about learning how companies operate and investing works in a refreshingly simple way. Please support our podcast by rating it five stars on Apple iTunes, subscribe and follow. Every follow really helps us out. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in.
As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya.